0: All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. That is Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. We are continuing our study of the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath, and today our focus will be on the Sabbath command, or the fourth commandment, as moral law. Uh, And we're going to just get right into it, so make sure you're paying attention even to the introduction, or you're going to be lost for about the first 20 minutes of this sermon. Before we begin, I think I need to define some terms. The first is moral law. What is a moral law? Well, A moral law is an eternally binding law that has its origin in the righteous character of God. A moral law is a law that is binding on all men at all times regardless of what covenant that they live under because God's righteous character does not change. Sometimes in theology or philosophy, moral law is called natural law. You can talk to Dr. Merriweather about natural law. It's kind of his thing right now. Moral law is sometimes called natural law. And it's called that because moral law can be deduced from the light of nature and human reason. That's something that our confession affirms. That is, we have an instinct about right and wrong. And just a little thought on those things will lead us to understand what is good and evil. Now, some examples of natural or moral law. Uh, first, it is manifestly clear that it's wrong to murder people. I hope you would put your amen to that. If not, we probably have a church discipline case on our hands. It's, it's wrong to murder people. To take someone's life without cause is a bad thing. We don't want that done to us, so we ought not do it to others. right? And we would cease to exist as a human race if everyone murdered everyone else. Okay. So it's manifestly clear by the light of nature and human reason that murder is morally wrong. Another example, since we know that God exists, it is wrong to refuse to worship him or to to think that we can simply choose for ourselves how we will worship him. He is God and as God ought to be worshipped. And since he is the one being worshipped, we ought to ask him how we should worship him. (laughs) Uh, It's basic. Another example, since God exists, we know that it is wrong to be disrespectful toward him. Since he is our maker, we ought to have the highest respect and reverence for him and his awesome wisdom and power, right? So again, moral law is eternally binding law for all men at all times, and the basic principles of the moral law are revealed by the light of nature and human reason. They are self-evident truths for people made in the image of God. But here's another definition. Pay attention. This one is important. What is a positive law? Positive law. Positive laws are those laws given by God that are not intrinsically moral. They are not intrinsically moral. Positive laws cannot be known from the light of nature and human reason, but must be positively or actively given by God to human beings or we would never know to obey them or how to obey them. Now let's be clear, once God gives a positive law to human beings, it becomes morally binding on whoever he gives it to because he's God and we are obligated to obey him. But nevertheless, positive laws are not inherently moral. And because they are not inherently moral, they are subject to change or to be abolished altogether as God deems fit. So God can put a positive law into effect, and God can alter or take a positive law away as he chooses, unlike the unchangeable moral law. So there are some laws that can be temporary or can be altered. Those are positive laws. There are other laws, moral laws, that cannot change. Some examples of positive laws, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were all positive Right, that—that that is the laws about cleanliness and washing and dietary restrictions. Those are all positive laws. The laws about sacrifices and who and co- who uh, could and could not offer them were positive laws. Um, another example: the civil laws of the Old Testament. Right, if someone commits this crime, here is their punishment. You would not know what their punishment should be from the light of nature. Right. So again, the punishments for the Old Testament violation of law, um, were positive laws. These laws could not be known to anyone by nature. God had to reveal them through prophets, and then once they were revealed, they became binding to the Jews. And those laws, we all agree, were abolished when Christ established the new covenant in his death. So again, those laws could go away after a certain point in time because they were not intrinsically moral. They were positive. Some other positive laws. Um, I just want to reiterate this point. Uh, The command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a positive law. There was nothing inherently immoral about that fruit. It was fruit like all the other fruit of the garden. But once God positively gave the command forbidding Adam and Eve from eating it, the law became binding. Likewise, we actually have some positive laws under the new covenant that we all already agree on. Uh, Baptism. To be immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is a positive law. Would you ever know that God wanted you to do that unless he told you in his word? You would never know that you should be baptized. Give you another one. The command to take bread and wine, bless it and eat it in remembrance of Christ, is a positive law. You would never know that you were supposed to do that unless God told you in his word. And what do we know? One day, baptism and the Lord's Supper will cease. They will cease. So, again, they're positive laws. They were instituted and they can be taken away. So, again, moral law is eternally binding on all men at all times, and it can be deduced from the conscience and human reason. But positive law is not inherently moral, and it must be revealed by God and instituted in order for us to know it, and it can be repealed or altered by God as he desires. Now, whew, what does that have to do with the Sabbath. What does that have to do with the Sabbath? Why is this distinction between moral and positive law important for us to know? Well, here we go. Many people claim, many Christians claim, that there is no Sabbath for Christians under the New Covenant. They claim that the command to keep one day in seven holy to the Lord was given only to the Jews under the Mosaic Covenant and therefore is not a moral law. And since it is not a moral law, It is not binding on all people at all times. What they're doing is this. They claim that the fourth commandment, the command to keep Sabbath, was a ceremonial law. That is, they claim it was a positive law. And that it passed away when Christ died and put an end to the old covenant. And here's the kicker. If that is true, if the commandment to keep the Sabbath is a merely positive law, if it was merely a ceremonial law given to the Jews under Moses, then that law indeed has no bearing on us today. But, you knew there was a but, I'm a Sabbatarian, right? But, if it can be shown that the fourth commandment is moral and not merely positive, then it remains today. If it is moral in substance, even if it is positive in some other regard, then the command to keep one day in seven holy to the Lord is forever binding on all men because the moral law never goes away. And this morning, I intend to show you from Scripture that the fourth commandment is a moral law. I plan to show you that it is not a merely positive or ceremonial law. I hope to show you by God's grace that the substance of the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy is moral, but the day on which the Sabbath is to be kept is positive. And in doing so, I hope to show you that the fourth commandment was not just for the Jews under Moses, but it's for all men at all times under all covenants. And if it is for all men at all times, then it is for us to keep as Christians. So with that said, may God bless the preaching of his word today and sanctify us. So if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now asking that you would bless the ministry of your word. Use the preacher to proclaim your word with faithfulness and accuracy. Bless the hearers as they humble themselves before your word. Please, God, clear away our prejudices and grant that we would gladly receive whatever it is that you've said. Command what you will and give grace for what you command. Have mercy on us and teach us this morning. Glorify yourself in us as you sanctify us by your word and spirit today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. What I just read to you is the fourth commandment. It is obviously one of the ten commandments, and it is part of the moral law of God. For all men in all places at all times. Now, with that declaration, that this is that this is the moral law. With that declaration comes an immediate question for most people. Buckle up, because we're about to answer a hard question. Here's the question: How is the fourth commandment moral if you believe that the day to be observed has changed from Saturday to Sunday? Right. If the moral law is unchangeable and the fourth commandment is a moral law, then how can the day change? It's a good question. That's an honest, good, thoughtful question for any Christian to ask. And here's your answer. I'm going to use the language of our confession on this. Chapter 22, paragraph 7. The fourth commandment is a positive moral law. <laughs> it's a positive moral law. But what does that mean? Well, it means that the fourth commandment is partly moral and partly positive. Or to put it another way, it is moral with regard to its substance and positive with regard to its application. Moral in substance, positive in application. Or moral in substance and to some degree positive in how it is to be observed. Allow me to explain. Here is the moral substance of the Sabbath commandment. This was big for me to understand. Here's the moral substance of it. Here's what we can know from our consciences and human reason. One, God exists and has made himself known to man. Therefore, he should be worshipped by man. So God exists and he should be worshipped. Two, in order for God to be worshipped by men, we must set aside time to worship him. Common sense. Three, in order to worship God we must cease from what we would ordinarily do with our time in order to give ourselves over to worshiping him. Cease from those things that I would normally do because you can't do more than one thing at once. People like to lie and say that they can do multiple things at once. No, you can't, especially not worshiping God. So again, easy enough. But here's where the law has a positive aspect, right? This is good. We should worship God and we must take time to cease from our ordinary work in order to worship him, but when? When should we do so? How often should we do so? Once every 10 days, once a year, once every six months? When should we do so and how often? Or what day and with what frequency? We need God to give us special revelation to answer those two questions. You can't get those from the light of nature. You can know you should set aside time and that you have to rest from your ordinary labor in order to worship God. You can know that, but you can't know when or how often that he expects you to do so. So, while the substance of the command is in our conscience and reason, we need God to positively tell us when and how often we should worship. And wouldn't you know, God did this when he instituted the Sabbath at creation. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1-3, through three, as I preached on last week, God told us by his own example that one whole day in seven is to be holy to him, to be given to him in worship. And he positively chose the last day of the week at that time to commemorate his work of creation. But since the day itself is positively chosen by God, it is possible for it to be changed at some point in time while the moral substance of the law remains unchanged. That is, the day of observance can change, but the principle of setting aside one day in seven for worship remains as the moral aspect of the law. Please hear me. The particular day of observance is not intrinsically moral. Why, how do I know that? No day is intrinsically different from another day. They're just 24-hour periods of time. Just like the fruit of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil was not intrinsically evil. It was fruit. Fruit is fruit, a day is a day. A particular day becomes binding for religious observance only because God commands that day to be observed. So then, brothers and sisters, the substance of devoting one day in seven to the worship of God is moral and instituted at creation. But the day itself has been positively ordained by God, and therefore, if he so wills it, he can change the day. And this is going to sound like I'm being a smart aleck, but hear me out. We know that the day can change in part because it did. <laughs> how do you know it's possible? Because it happened. It's, it's actually one of our answers uh, to, to the hypostatic union, Christ being truly God and truly man. I, heard, I read one theologian say uh, to the objection, how, how, how do you know God can become a man? And the answer was, well, first, because he did. Because the scriptures say that he did. And so I know that it's possible because it happened. We know that the day can be changed because we read in the New Testament by apostolic example and language and institution that the day did change. This is to be proven more in later sermons. But again, the day change does not alter the morality of the command. It only changes the positive aspect of it. So the Sabbath command is partly moral, partly positive. The substance is moral. But the specific day to be observed is positively chosen. And that's why our confession calls it a positive moral command. So I want you to consider this as well. The nature of this law, the very nature of it, requires a positive command in order for it to be properly observed and obeyed. Again, though we intrinsically know That time must be set apart for worship. God must tell us when. He must positively institute the day of worship or we cannot know how to properly keep this moral law. In other words, without a positive command to tell us the day, there is no shape to the moral aspect of this law. Without a positive command, this law cannot be kept. There must be a day chosen if we are to worship God at the time that he demands. So then, as the Puritans would argue, this law is of necessity, partly moral and partly positive. Of necessity it is, because we can't obey it unless God tells us when we're supposed to meet. And he must do that positively. Now, a brief note here, before you think that this is an odd thing or a stretch of theology... Let me, let me show you that there is already another command like this that you embrace, especially if you're a Reformed Christian. You already embrace another commandment like this, and that's the second commandment. Bear with me. The moral principle of the second commandment is this. God is to be worshipped according to his will and not the ideas or imaginations of men. Why does God say, no, don't make any images of me or, or worship them? Why? Because I'll tell you how to worship me. Right, that's the principle of the second commandment. But check this. In order for us to keep the second commandment, we need God to reveal further positive laws about how he's going to be worshipped. And obviously, the laws concerning how to properly worship God can change. How do I know they can change? Do we worship like the Jews under the old covenant? Didn't think so. So the laws regarding how to practically worship the Lord can change because they're positive. So both the second and fourth commandments require some kind of positive laws in order to give them their shape so that they can be obeyed. And the positive aspects of those commandments are subject to change depending on what covenant you live under. So then, just real quick, if you believe that the second commandment governs our worship, you should have no problem with the fourth commandment containing a positive aspect for our application. You should have no problem with it. And that's because Though we require a positive element in order to keep the second commandment, none of us would say that the second commandment is a merely positive law. It's a moral law. So then, let me say again, the fourth commandment is partly moral and partly positive. The substance of the command is moral, but the particular day is positive. Now that was a lot. And you probably feel like you've been drinking from a fire hose, and that's okay. Sometimes that's what we have to do in theology. But now the sermon's going to get a lot simpler. It's going to get a lot simpler. I now want to give a brief exposition of the fourth commandment. Right, If you checked out on that, I'll give you a copy of my manuscript, and we can talk about it privately. I understand that was a lot. Tune back in. Tune back in. I want to give an exposition of the fourth commandment itself now in order to show you the moral principles contained in it so that you can see it's not a ceremonial law. Let me read the commandment again. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This commandment tells us that we are to keep the Sabbath holy. That is, we are to keep it separate from other days of the week. We are to show it reverence as the day God has set apart for himself and for his worship. Remember what we learned last week. To sanctify or to make holy means to set something apart for worshiping God. So we are commanded here to use the day for holy purposes. Keep the day holy. Use it for worship. But how are we to keep the day holy exactly? Well... In God's grace, the commandment goes on to tell us, don't you like that God doesn't leave us to our own devices? He says, I'll tell you. We are to labor and do all our work in the six days leading up to the Sabbath. We are to make the best use of our time. We are to make the best use of the six days and get our affairs in order and our work done to the best of our ability so that we are prepared for the Sabbath day. But, After those six days, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. That is a day of ceasing. That's what Sabbath means, to cease. So it's a day when we cease from those labors. Six days, you do all your work, and then you cease, is what it literally says. You cease from those works. And that's why we're not told, again, we're not told to do any work on it. On it, you shall not do any work. And I like that. It's not plural there. It's not y'all. On it, y'all, no, it's talking to you. By the way, there are sometimes, there's a plural you. It says, no, you, God's talking to the individual, reading this command. On it, you shall do no work. But notice that we aren't, individually, the only ones forbidden to work on the Sabbath. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Check this out. The commandment's telling us, God is telling us, you are to cease from your labors and you are to ensure that everyone under your authority does likewise. Everyone under your authority is to do likewise. You don't work on the Sabbath and you don't allow others to work who are under your authority and you don't hire other people to work either. You don't hire them to work. So this applies to heads of homes, you or your son or your daughter, and employers. You say, where does this apply to employers? Your male servant or your female servant. What are you paying them to do? To serve you. To do work for you. So everyone under your authority. Heads of homes and employers. And notice, this isn't just for Jews. Oh, I wish I had time to go to Nehemiah. I believe it's chapter 13 where Nehemiah uh, threatens the Gentiles, who aren't Jews, get away from the city gates on the Sabbath trying to sell your wares, or I will fight you. This is not just for Jews. Even the non-Jew is to Sabbath. How do I know that? The sojourner who is within your gates. That is the one who's not a Jew, but he's with y'all anyway. He is to Sabbath as well. So the principle is this. You don't work, and you don't make anyone else work either. You take the day off from work, and you make sure to the best of your abilities, with whatever authority that you have, with whatever power that you have, you make sure that everyone around you gets that day off too. Everyone, I like this, everyone is entitled to the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is one of the things that makes all men equal. Everyone is entitled to this day. Everyone is entitled to God's appointed day of rest And check this, this command implicitly teaches us that we are to protect the rest of others by refusing to make them work or even permitting them to work even as we do not work on the Sabbath. This also means that everyone has the right by God's grace to rest and engage worshiping him on this day. I want you to see this here on the fourth commandment. God protects the right to rest and the right to worship in this commandment. This is one of the reasons why it would be immoral for an employer to work you 365 days a year. Because God gives you an appointed day every week. But again, are we to do nothing on the Sabbath? Well, no. As I've said already, we're to engage in the worship of God on the Sabbath day. We are to keep it holy. Set it apart for worship. Notice also in in verse 10... I like this. It is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. What does that mean? It's a day to God. Or as I read one man say, it is a Godward day. It has a heavenly focus. It is a day that is oriented in a special way toward the Lord. Again, it is a day of worship. And let me point this out. As one of our young members, Miri, pointed this out to me last week. I appreciated it. Good reminder. Good reminder. It's a Sabbath day is what the text says. It doesn't say remember the Sabbath morn to keep it holy or remember the Sabbath eve to keep it holy. No, remember the Sabbath day. It is the whole of the day. So then, the whole of the day is to be used for the worship of God as much as we are able as finite and weak human beings who must rest and sleep and eat and all the other necessary things that we have to do as finite humans. And why are we to do this? Because as verse 11 says, God did it first. I like that. I know I keep saying I like that. This commandment is good. (laughs) Verse 11, God did it first. We are to imitate him in his working six days and resting one day at creation. We're to do this because it is something that God instituted for all mankind in the beginning. And we are to keep the day because God himself not only has given us an example, but he has tied a blessing to the day. Verse 11 says he blessed it, and he himself has made the day holy. He blessed it and sanctified it. He has made the day a sacred day that we dare not profane. Now, allow me to issue a challenge before we go any further. And I don't mean this this in a rude way, but it's a challenge nevertheless. To any who would claim that the Sabbath command is merely positive or ceremonial, I ask you to show me what portion of the fourth commandment, aside from the day of observance, what portion of the fourth commandment is ceremonial? I would challenge you to answer that. It says that we're to keep the Sabbath day holy. Are we no longer obligated to keep holy things holy? Are we no longer obligated to imitate the Lord? Do we no longer need to set aside a day for worship? Is it now morally permissible for an employer to work his employee 365 days a year? By the way, you take the Sabbath command away, there is no moral law in the entire Bible that demands an employer to give his employee a break. Not that I know of anyway. Is it now morally acceptable to keep someone from worshiping the Lord by making them work or serve you? Is that acceptable for us to do? To keep someone from going to, the, the, to assemble with the people of God by saying, no, you need to work for me instead. Is that now morally acceptable? Does the rest of men and the worship of God no longer need to be protected and guaranteed by divine law? Brothers and sisters, none of this is ceremonial. None of it. The Sabbath command protects and promotes the worship of God, while also protecting man's right to rest from his labor and worship the Lord. That is moral stuff. That's moral stuff. Only the day itself is positive. The commandment is clearly moral in substance. Now allow me to to make a further case that the fourth commandment is moral law. We're not done. Let's keep going. We all agree that there are many laws under the Old Covenant that passed away with the coming of the New Covenant. All the rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, priesthood, all that stuff have gone away. In other words, the ceremonial law has passed away, but we all believe, theologically, that the moral law continues. And I submit to you that the Ten Commandments summarize the moral law of God. And I believe that we can know this in part because of how God gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai. This was a game changer for me when I was studying this doctrine a few years ago. What I mean is this. God gave the Ten Commandments in such a special way and with such solemnity that he intends us to see and understand that these ten laws are not like the other laws that he gave to the Jews. These ten laws are different from those other laws that God instituted under the Old Covenant. So here we go. First, have you ever considered that the Ten Commandments were audibly spoken by God himself at Sinai? Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 says, And God spoke. We hear it every week, don't we? And God spoke all these words saying, Here we go, there's the Ten Commandments begins. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 22 underscores that only these commandments were uttered by the divine voice. Check this out. These words, referring to the Ten Commandments, you can read the Deuteronomy 5 context. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. He added no more. There's a special dignity given to these Ten Commandments because God personally and audibly spoke them to his people and did not speak any other ones to his people. All the other Old Testament laws were revealed to Moses and then Moses as a prophet and mediator revealed those laws to the people. But the Ten Commandments God gave immediately, that is with no mediator. He spoke them directly. This tells us, I think, that these laws are different from the others, and the fourth commandment is one of them. Second, the ten commandments were written by God himself at Sinai. Not only did he speak them, but he wrote them down himself. Exodus chapter 31, verse 18 says, And he, that is God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, Written with the finger of God. God wrote them with his own finger. Now that's clearly a human way of speaking about God because the divine nature has no literal fingers. Just like the psalmist did not mean to tell us that God has wings. Right? But the idea that's being conveyed is that these laws are near to the Lord. He, wrote, he took the time to personally write them. Right? Not just to speak them, but he wrote them down himself. They are immediately connected to him. They belong to him in a special way. No other laws were written down by God, only these. Third, as we just read in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God on what? Tablets of stone. Old oh, man. Out of all the things that they could have been written on, the Lord chose stone. You say, well, what else did they have? Well, they had animal skins. They had a a primitive form of paper back then. But God decided, no, these laws need to be inscribed in stone. What do we know about stone? It doesn't go away. It doesn't commemorate God's grace toward him. We read of Samuel in 1 Samuel setting up a stone and calling it Ebenezer. Right here I raise my Ebenezer. That's where we get that from. He set up a stone, calling it Ebenezer to commemorate God's help to his people. We read of Absalom in 2 Samuel, setting up a stone for his own remembrance because he had no son. Stone is significant. It signals that something is to be remembered forever. So then, there is something significant for us to see in the fact that God chose to write these commandments in stone, especially when you consider that the other laws of the Old Testament were not written in stone. Exodus chapter 24, verses 4 through 7 tells us they were written in a book. That is clearly not stone. It's not a book of stone. The Ten Commandments alone are written in stone because they alone would continue after the Old Covenant passed away. Fourth, the Ten Commandments were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 says, And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before. The Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made, and there they are, as the Lord commanded me. Now, why is that significant that they were put in the ark of the covenant? Do you know that the ark was God's throne? God's throne. It was placed in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the tabernacle, the holiest place in the temple, and there God promised his special presence to dwell above the ark. The ark is to be God's throne. That God told Moses to place the Ten Commandments in the ark shows that it has primacy over the other laws, and that's highlighted by the fact that all the other laws of the Old Testament were placed not in the ark but on the side of the Ark, or beside it. Deuteronomy 31.26 says, Take this book of the law, that's all the other laws, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. The Ten Commandments are not like the other Mosaic laws. They are given a place in God's very throne, while the other commandments were not given the same pride of place with the Lord. In summary so far... These laws are clearly different from the other laws that God gave to Israel. They are near to the Lord. They're special to him in a way that the other laws are not. And the fourth commandment is one of them. These laws are a reflection of of God's character and his moral will for all men at all times. And that simply doesn't change. So this commandment of one day and seven belonging to the Lord for worship does not go away either. Furthermore, let me add this. and I appreciate Dr. Sam Waldron for this. The content of the Ten Commandments is manifestly moral and not ceremonial. The Fourth Commandment is surrounded by moral law. Setting aside the Fourth Commandment, there is not a single Christian who would argue that the other nine commandments are not moral. I hope not, anyway. I hope not, anyway. I know that this used to bother me as a a young Christian studying the Word of God. I was told by all my pastors, no, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. That was just for the Jews. And then I read the Ten Commandments, and I'm like, man, like right smack dab in the middle of all of these moral commandments that we believe still continues, there's this ceremonial law, and I never understood why. Well, I understand why now. It's because it's not ceremonial. Surely I can't be the only one in this room that's thought, man, that's really weird that in the middle of the Ten Commandments is a law that I don't have to keep. Surely that struck some of you as odd. The subject matter of this set of laws is clearly moral in nature. Setting aside the fourth commandment, we all agree that the other nine are moral. So to to paraphrase Dr. Waldron, it would be utterly shocking to find that embedded in the middle of nine other commandments that are exclusively moral, that the fourth commandment is exclusively ceremonial. That would be shocking. Brothers and sisters, surely we don't believe that these are all coincidences, do we? Surely we don't believe that these things are coincidences. There's too many. If it was just one, I'd say, okay, maybe I'm wrong. But five, four, five different, and that wasn't even all the things that I could say about how God gave the Ten Commandments. Surely these laws are different from the other laws, and that is plain to see for anyone who is willing to see it. Let me pursue this even further, though. Let's turn to the New Testament. Did you know that the New Testament presupposes and refers to to the continuation of the Ten Commandments as moral law. They are cited over and over and over again as valid and binding for the Christian and all people. There are so many. There are so many examples that I could give, but for the sake of time, which I do actually care about how long I'm up here, contrary to popular opinion, um, (laughs) I'm going to limit myself to three. Here they are. First, Jesus Christ points to the Ten Commandments as God's standard for life in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. Everyone knows the rich young ruler passage, right? This rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus turns to him and says, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And then the man asks, Which commandments? And then in Matthew 19, verses 18 through 19, Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I believe that that last one is a summary of the second table of the law. Brothers and sisters, Jesus directed the young man to the Ten Commandments as the summary of God's requirements for him. He did it to reveal the man's sin, by the way. But nevertheless, he says, you want eternal life? Keep God's commandments. And he points to the Ten Commandments. The fact that he only quoted from the second table of the law doesn't matter. He's clearly appealing to the Ten Commandments, that they tell us how to live. And the fourth commandment is one of them. A second example. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul is talking about the law of God that we ought to obey as Christians. And there, the apostle appeals to the Ten Commandments. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What is the law? He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Again, Paul does not quote all Ten Commandments, but regardless, he is clearly appealing to the Ten Commandments as the law for Christians. The Fourth Commandment is one of them. Lastly, I want you to consider Romans chapter 7, verse 7. This was huge for me this past week to chew on. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes this, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Here, Paul is talking about the law revealing his own sin, and then he immediately quotes the Tenth Commandment. So, hear me. When Paul And I'll prove this further in a moment. When Paul talks about the law, he is talking about the Ten Commandments, at least in Romans. When he talks about the law, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And that's interesting because earlier in the book, in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here, Paul tells us that the law is the means by which God will render the whole world guilty and accountable in the judgment. That's Romans 3.19. And that law is the same law That In verse 20, Paul says, reveals sin and gives us the knowledge of sin. And what law did Paul say in Romans 7 revealed his sin to him? One of the Ten Commandments. Paul's use of the phrase elsewhere in Romans 7 tells us it is the Ten Commandments that revealed his sin. So then, brothers and sisters, oh, hear me. The Ten Commandments are the standard by which God will judge the world. The Ten Commandments are then the summary of God's moral law. And the fourth commandment is one of them. Brothers and sisters, the Ten Commandments are for us. They're for us today. They haven't gone away. The New Testament appeals to them as the standard of living for Christians. And it appeals to them as the standard also by which God will judge the entire world. They're for us. And that would include the fourth one. At this point, I want to now attempt to appeal to your hearts i've tried to appeal to your minds i want to appeal to your hearts now church did you know that one of the blessings of the new covenant of which you are a member is that the ten commandments are written on your heart did you know that jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 33 i'll read it to you now behold the days are coming declares the lord And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Lord promises that he will write his law on the hearts of every single member of the new covenant. And and we know that Jesus instituted the new covenant in his blood at the cross. So this prophecy then is referring to the age of the Messiah. It's referring to the age in which we live, the new covenant era. So then, Jeremiah is prophesying about us. He's talking about us. So again, God promises to write his law on the hearts of every single new covenant member. And this promise, check the context, is made immediately after a reference to the Exodus and the Mosaic covenant. God mentions bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, making a covenant with them, and that they went on to break the covenant. Now, how did they break it? They broke it by disobeying the law of God. You can read that in the prophets. By not keeping his Sabbaths, read Jeremiah. By worshiping idols... By, sh- by being irreverent toward him, by committing adultery, by committing murder, by breaking his moral law, they broke covenant with God. But now, God promises to write his law on the hearts of every single person in the new covenant. And now, what would that law be? Clearly, in the context, in immediately preceding reference to the Exodus and the Mosaic covenant, God is promising that the Ten Commandments would be written on the hearts of his people. Consider this, I can't help but to to think that this is the parallel. At Sinai, after God brought the people out of Egypt, he himself wrote the law on tablets of stone. But in the age of the new covenant, he himself will write his law not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of his people. Truly, the new covenant is superior to the old one. And one of the reasons is that its members have the moral law of God written within us so that we can perfectly obey it, sincerely, or rather not perfectly, but sincerely, even if not perfectly. Now, what other law could God be referring to here? I'll tell you this, it's not the ceremonial law. We know that law passed away. It is the moral law that is written on our hearts. Surely we don't believe that a desire to set aside time to worship God is not written on our hearts. Of course it is. Hear me. This is a bold declaration, but hear me. The fourth commandment is within every single person who has come to faith in Christ. Every single one of you. Now, to that, some of you would say, so are you saying everyone who's not a Sabbatarian is not a Christian? Because I don't think it's written on my heart because I'm not a Sabbatarian. Yes, it is written on your heart, and I'm going to prove it to you. Big thanks to Pastor Stephen for showing this to me one day. Every Christian, every Christian sets aside time to assemble with God's people and worship him. That's what we're doing right now. That's what you've done today. Oh, hear me. Let's flesh this out a little further. Every Christian sets aside at least some time and lays down their secular labors and recreations in order to devote some time to the Lord and his worship. Specifically, when do we do it? On the Lord's Day. The first day of the week, the day that the Sabbath got changed to. This is an expression of the fourth commandment having been written on your heart. I do not know of any true Christian who believes that they can forsake the worship of God. Such a person is a false professor who knows nothing of the mercy of Christ. So, catch this. Pastor Stephen said this to me one day even people who aren't Sabbatarian are at least a little Sabbatarian, they go to church. They go to church. They think that all Christians are to set aside time to worship God. They believe that all Christians need to put down their work for at least a few hours and go worship the Lord. And because of that, we see that the law has been written on their hearts. Praise God. They just need to grow in it. That's my appeal to you if you're here and you're not a Sabbatarian. Grow in it. The seed is there. You just need nudged out of the way so it has room to grow into full Sabbath keeping. Brothers and sisters, this is in us. It's in every one of us to keep the Sabbath. You all do it to some degree. All of us know that devoting an entire day to the Lord and assisting others to do so and resting from our work is a moral good. It's just that most modern Christians need to recover a greater keeping of the Sabbath day. Most of us need to move, all of us, I'm included in this. I don't perfectly keep the Sabbath. All of us need to move out of the way, clear our hearts of the world, clear the Lord's Day of unnecessary stuff, and allow the Sabbath seed that God has planted in our hearts the room to grow and bloom for his glory. My dear brothers and sisters, the law is within you. Don't fight it. Submit to it. Submit to it and honor the one who has saved you by his grace and written his law on your heart. It's in there. But as I near the close of this sermon, let me say a few more things. Brothers and sisters, I I believe I have made a clear case that the fourth commandment is a moral law. And so you must treat it as such. You must. It is a serious thing to break the Sabbath. It is a sin to use the Lord's day however you want. You must keep the day holy and use it as God has appointed in his word. So please hear me. This is not an optional thing for you. To break the fourth commandment is just as serious a thing as breaking any of the other ten commandments. This is not a theological thing. This is ethical. This has to do with righteousness before the Lord. And so, and I say this with all pastoral love, as as I had people through books appealing to me, I now appeal to you in person. You must repent of your Sabbath breaking. Just as I call you to repent of breaking any of the other Ten Commandments, I now call you to repent of profaning the Lord's Day and treating it as an extra Saturday. You must turn back your foot from the Sabbath. You must not trample down God's holy day with worldly activities. You must give Him His due. You must honor His day. And so you must repent when you do not do so. This is serious, brothers and sisters. God does not treat this sin as a light thing. Ask Jeremiah. Sin and righteousness are on the line. So I beg you, keep the day holy. But I don't want to leave you there. I'm a minister of the gospel. This all reminds us of how much we need Christ, does it not? There is not a one of us who have ever perfectly kept the Sabbath day holy. Maybe we have externally, but not internally. I'm a pretty devoted Sabbatarian, and every Lord's Day is yet another reminder for me that I am not ready for heaven. If it's an eternal Sabbath, and I'm thinking, man, my grass needs cut, or man, I wish that I could do this, or I wish that I could do that, that's breaking it in my own heart. Like every other commandment, none of us have kept this one perfectly or perpetually. And so, like with every other commandment, we need what I read to you this morning in Matthew 3. We need the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. And we also need his blood to cleanse us of our sin and our disobedience. And praise be to God, Christ has done this for us, just as he has done with every other commandment of God. Our Lord perfectly kept the Sabbath. Read the New Testament. He kept the Sabbath, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He kept the Sabbath for Sabbath breakers like us. Our Lord honored the day and gave himself to worship in our place, so that by faith in him, his righteousness would become ours. And he himself bore the penalty for our profaning of the day. He suffered the wrath of God for our disregard of God and his worship. He was punished as if he had robbed God of glory. He was punished as if he had insulted the majesty and authority of God. He was punished as if he had kept others from worship. He was punished as a Sabbath breaker in order that he might atone for the sins of Sabbath breakers like you and I. Truly, the fourth commandment reveals to us once again and in a different light how much we need Christ. And praise be to God, he has fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf and made a full atonement for our sins. Oh, trust him always. Look to him always. And as you look to him for forgiveness and mercy, be energized to continue striving to obey him. Oh, hear me. As you have received mercy in Christ for your wasted Sabbaths, endeavor from now on to keep the Lord's day holy, for your Lord has saved you from your sins. Honor the one who has saved you by spending the day with him each week. Spend the day with him. May God grant us all to look to Christ always for our salvation. And may he help us to keep the law out of gratitude for the forgiveness of sins that we have received from his hand. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, seal your truth to our hearts. Forgive us, grant us repentance for our Sabbath breaking. Help us to look to Christ again and again and again as our righteousness and as our atonement. We thank you for giving him in our place. And God, we thank you also for the blessings of the new covenant, your law written on our hearts, the forgiveness of sins given to us by grace. Help us to walk in light of your grace and obey you. Have mercy, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.